ordinarily when using mics for this small of a room, um, so if it gets too loud with my booming dramatic voice, um, please let me know. Um, I'm so excited to have you all here today. Um, this is a topic and um, an issue that I know is very close to mine and, and Lisa and Janine's hearts um, in our work in public history and in museums. Um, my name is Sarah Ferrone. I'm the program director for North America with the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. Um, and prior to that, I worked with the Lower East Side Tenement Museum for about five years, um, looking at issues of immigration in museums. So if you saw in your program that Annie Polland was gonna be here, I, I hope that I can be a, a suitable replacement um, for what she would add to the discussion as well. Um, I, I do have to say that um, there are few things that keep me up at night. One of them is my two and a half year old. Um, and the other is really this, this pressing issue of, of my own involvement in the field and this idea of how museums can be places to help our communities talk about the contemporary issues that they are facing. Um, and we've seen in numerous reports, the Center for the Future of Museums, um, and who did their recent demographic change kind of concept. We've um, seen it in early things like mastering civic engagement and, and even in the presence of the past. These ideas around the things that demographics are changing in our communities, that museums are a place that need to be places of civic engagement, and that museums are trusted sources in which people can get what they consider to be unbiased information um, in contrast to the media and other forms um, of communication. And yet we see in those forms of communication this rhetoric and a, a very vitriolic discussion of immigration in our country today. And people have begun to talk about this idea of bringing discussions about immigration into the communities and into these neutral spaces of museums. The sites that we work with at the coalition are very invested in this idea and are invested in the idea of saying, we have historical context that can help people think about these ideas, think about their personal reactions to immigration and to civil rights, and to how they're, and to shape how their communities will handle these demographic shifts, um, as well as the programming that they choose to launch to respond to these topics. Um, I wanted to leave that there and, and ask you that with all of this in the climate, I'm often wonder where we are in this discussion because there isn't a lot of our involvement as museums and historic sites. So when you think about addressing immigration at your institutions, what's the first word that comes to mind? What's the thing you think of first if I asked you to go back and do a program on immigration at your sites? Backlash? Anything else? Expected? Where are you from? <laughs> ah, <laughs> the National Czech and Slovak Museum and Library. Yes, I would. I would hope you are. <laughs> Anyone else? Nineteenth century. Mm -hmm. Yep. Controversy. Controversy. Anything else? My grandmother. I think even in that quick kind of reply from the five or six of you, that is a lot of the gamut, right? If we're gonna talk about it now, it's gonna be controversial, there's gonna be backlash, there's gonna be issues, it becomes political. But if we're talking about in the past, 
it's about my grandmother. It's about the 19th century. Um, and there's a, a we're far more comfortable in talking about those issues. My career in museums has been really dominated by this question. I worked with the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn for three years, went to the Tenement Museum for five years, and now um, work with the Sites of Conscience. Um, and I'm happy to be joined by two colleagues um, who uh, also have begun and, and, and have continually begun, come to question, I should say, um, the role that their institutions play in actively addressing these contemporary issues of immigration and how those issues intersect with civil rights. Uh, Lisa Junkin is the education coordinator at Jane Addams Hull House Museum in Chicago, Illinois. The Jane Addams Hull House Museum serves as a memorial to social reformer and Nobel Peace Prize recipient Jane Addams and other social reformers whose work influenced the lives of their immigrant neighbors as well as national and international policy. As Hull House Settlement was a place where people came together, immigrants, social reformers, writers, and others to imagine, convene, and argue about the issues of the time the museum continues to provide a place to discuss and debate contemporary social issues today. Using the tours and exhibits of Jane Addams' home as a shared experience and launching pad, the museum provides members of the general public and college students with facilitated dialogue on immigration and social change. The program provides participants an opportunity to hear from each other, reflect on the tour, define their own views on immigration, and like the reformers at Hull House, identify how they can respond to the needs they see in their communities. An advocate and catalyst for building community capacity and understanding culture, Janine Bryant is the Vice President of Education at the Levine Museum of the New South, an interactive history museum that provides comprehensive interpretation of post-Civil War Southern society, featuring men, women, children, black and white, rich and poor, longtime residents and newcomers who have shaped the South since the Civil War. The museum's most recent uh, temporary exhibit, Changing Places from Black and White to Technicolor, formed the heart of an ambitious multi-part project aimed at helping the Charlotte region grapple with the effects of rapid growth and demographic change. The wider Changing Places project extended those insights via community-based programming, innovative partnerships with the media, and civic dialogue. Both Jane Addams Hull House Museum and the Levine Museum of the New South are members of the coalition, and more specifically, our Immigration and Civil Rights Sites of Conscience Network. We're gonna run our session today as an open forum. Um, I'm gonna just do a few minutes, probably about five minutes, about the coalition and the creation of the Immigration Network, just to provide a little bit of context for how our sites have been working together. Um, and then we're gonna turn it into a form. We have some questions that we would like to begin with so as to give a little bit more background on the programs that both Lisa and Janine are working with. Um, but we're happy to field questions as we go along at any time. Um, so if that, if that happens and you have a question even you know, as we begin some of the preliminary questions, please let me know. We are recording so I'm gonna bring the mic um, to you or I'll have you come up to us um, so that we get the question recorded as well. Okay, all right. Um, so for those of you who may not necessarily be familiar with the coalition, the coalition was founded in 1999. Um, it was the, the brainchild of two women, Ruth Abram and Liz Savchenko, coming out of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, um, who really were kind of trying to find a place to fund the work they wanted to do. 
And they were going to museum funders, and museum funders were saying, what do you mean you want to teach English in your museum? And then they were going to social service agencies, and the social service agencies were saying, but you're a museum. <laughs> Why would we fund you? What do you have to add to the needs of our community? And so what they did literally was send a fax, which tells you that it was 1999, um, out to hundreds of sites around the globe, and they got responses from eight people. Um, but those eight people um, came from institutions that immediately entrenched the idea of an international um, coalition within Ruth and, and Liz's perspective. It's a little small, but you can see the representatives from the Slave House in Senegal, the District 6 Museum in South Africa, uh, the National Park Service, who is representing um, the Martin Luther King Historic Site and the Eleanor Roosevelt Historic Sites, um, Memoria Arberta in Argentina, the Liberation War Museum in Bangladesh, Terezin in the Czech Republic, the Workhouse in the United Kingdom, and the Gulag Museum in Russia. It's a pretty good group of thinkers. And they've been joined by about 270 other sites um, in the last 10 years, all of whom believe that sites of conscience are places that we can talk about past struggles for justice. The defining qualities of a site of conscience are that they use history through sight. They are a place where something happened. Um, they engage in programs that stimulate dialogue on pressing social issues and promote humanitarian and dem democratic values as a function. And that they share opportunities for public involvement in the issues that are raised at the site. Because of our rapid growth, we've quickly had to establish regional networks in which to work in many of these continents. And these are the regional networks that we're currently working with. Um, and amongst them, you see in North America, the immigration and civil rights sites of conscience. So the immigration and civil rights network kicked off about three years ago with 13 um, sites who got together to begin to think about how we would talk about immigration. They came predominantly from ethnic identity museums, um, like the Czech Library, um, as well as um, sites who were doing larger immigration history, um, or museums who maybe had just had a little bit of involvement with an immigration exhibits, um, or were really just kind of getting off the ground. They've since been joined um, by numerous other sites, all of whom you see here. And you'll notice a strong presence of civil rights museums amongst the mix. This came about predominantly through a meeting in 2009 in Memphis um, at the National Civil Rights Museum. Uh, we were there to talk about issues of detainment and whether we should create a museum at Guantanamo Bay. And while talking about that issue, um, the civil rights museums became interested in the immigration topic and we had an extensive conversation about if immigration is a civil rights issue and is the legacy of a civil rights museum or institution to talk about that ongoing concept of civil rights or rather as institutions, is it more in keeping with their mission and their community to define the civil rights movement more narrowly? And we were all over the map. But the sites that you see here are interested enough to start thinking about how these two concepts intersect. Um, and two of the speakers who are with us today are some of the leaders of that conversation. These are the three goals that the network has for its work together. 
to open new centers for education and debates on immigration and race, past and present, to build models and resources for history museums to address these issues, and to raise public awareness of what museums are doing around these topics. This I put up not so to say we're done, because we're not done, but only because, as you know, it's a green conference this year. I'm sure you've heard this in other um, sessions that you've been in. This is the link to the resources. Um, I just wanted to contextualize for you that when you go to that link for our session, what you'll be um, given are uh, immigration issue briefs that were developed by a panel of National Endowment for the Humanities scholars who worked with our sites um, over a planning grant for the last year to talk about how we can best use history and humanities resources to talk about immigration today. Um, so there's three sample briefs that we put up here um, and I can easily make the rest of the briefs available to you. Um, there's 12 in total, and they all address different issues of immigration, public health care, um, xenophobia, religious diversity, those types of things. Okay. With that, I'd like to begin the open forum um, section of our presentation, if no one has any questions at this time. Okay. Yeah. Um, we don't have a, a specific number that we say. I would love if every museum decided, hey, this is an issue that's happening in our cities and in our country and we need to talk about it. Um, we do ask that all of the members be relatively active um, in their programming. So it is an open membership, um, but we, we do stay in pretty consistent communication. Um, although our resources are available for many, you know, for anyone. Um, so from the coalition, we have an online forum of dialogue program models, resources, articles that gets fed into from all of our international sites um, that we can give you the, the online you know, kind of sign on for and you can all access the forum materials at this point. Yeah, that's how we got Arizona. <laughs> um, no, yes, there's definitely, I think there was a, a large interest in West Coast museums who were really well populated with California for a long time. Um, and as part of an IMLS project, we're, we're training civil rights museums how to talk about immigration. And we're also out in the Southwest and on the West Coast border doing the same project. And that, to me, when I saw the list of sites involved, I said, well, where's Arizona and where's New Mexico and where's Texas? Um, so the sites that you see that are on the list right now are sites that came on after that most recent initiative. Um, so if you know, anyone from Utah wants to get on board, let us know, um, or any of the other sites out there, we're, we're happy for involvement from all over the country. Yeah. No. There are, they are, and, and, and Levine Museum of the New South is one of those um, who's with us here today. So you saw in the mix that there are some who are actual historic sites or who would define themselves as historic sites. We also have many museums. Um, the thing about Levine that works very well for the coalition is that Levine defines their site as the community in which they work. Um, and so that's very in keeping with our tradition um, at the coalition. There's also um, a large amount of sites around the globe who won't define themselves as museums. Um, that's a, a touchy term internationally. Um, and so some of those sites define themselves as memory initiatives um, or you know, kind of um, oral history projects. And they're also very much involved with our work and what we're doing. All right. 
Um, with that, I'm gonna kind of turn it over to, to Lisa and Janine to have both of you tell us a little bit more about your programs. Um, and maybe we can start with you telling us a bit about the communities that you serve um, and the current discussion of immigration that you see happening in, in Chicago and in Charlotte. Hi everyone, and thanks Sarah for organizing. It's so nice to be here. My home state, actually. <laughs> um, so the Jane Addams Hull House Museum is a national historic landmark in Chicago, Illinois, and we have uh, a really broad audience, I would say, as a result of that. Um, lots of folks nationally and internationally who come to visit, um, but we have a, a really uh, uh, active, um, you know, visitorship from Chicago itself. And in fact, the primary audience for our guided tours and our dialogue program, which we'll be talking about, are college students from within the city or within the region. Uh, the reason is that no matter what you're studying, <laughs> um, Hull House has a, a deep connection. You know, we've got history students, art history students, public health, um, social work, of course. Um, urban planning, I mean, art that goes on and on, education. So so we've got this uh, amazing, like our, our primary audience is college students, which is really fun for us. Um, we're also located on a college campus, uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago. And it's a, it's a wonderful campus. It's an incredible, um, uh, incredibly diverse campus. Um, Chicago has over 1.4 million immigrants in the area and many of the students who come to UIC are first generation college students and, and immigrants themselves. And we also have a large population of students coming from rural areas in Illinois from around the state. So it's a great community there. And as of course you know, Chicago remains a very diverse and also a very highly segregated city. Not just black, white, but ethnically we're still a city of neighborhoods and so that's kind of always a part of the conversation it's something that we see in Jane Addams Day and it's something that still exists today um, and immigration I think is a heated debate in all of those communities um, in Illinois, we just passed uh, a, an Illinois version of the DREAM Act. It was signed into law one month ago. And um, what it does is it um, creates a privately funded account to hold donations for scholarships and grants that make it possible for both documented and undocumented immigrants to attend college. Um, and that's because undocumented immigrants um, cannot accept the federal financial aid. Um, this this uh, Illinois DREAM Act does not have a path to citizenship, um, which is a big you know, distinction between that and the federal. Um, but it, uh, it encourages counselors to be trained on educational opportunities for these students in addition to setting up that fund. So those are, that's one of the major issues that we're thinking about in Chicago. So I'm Janine Bryant. I'm here representing Levine Museum of the New South. And we're located in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary this year and our 10th anniversary in the building that we're in. So we have a physical space, but as Sarah said, we are not an actual historic site. So um, one of the ways that we try to engage the community, our, our tagline, if you will, is using history to build community. And the idea is that we are not your typical history museum and we want to utilize the history in order to help build bridges and link the community to the history and find relevance and build on that relevance. So historically, I can talk about this from multiple perspectives. The museum's kind of put on the map with an exhibit called Courage, and that was our first attempt at doing dialogue and hosting um, 
dialogic experience for the larger community. And during that time, we actually saw over a thousand people during a six month run of the Courage exhibition, which is looking at Brown versus Board of Education. Um, that exhibit was nationally acclaimed and named as a museum, um, an exhibit of service for community service and museums in 2004 when we hosted it, when we designed it and hosted it. Um, since then, it's traveled to LA and New York, Baltimore, Atlanta, um, and we'll continue to travel after, when we actually brought it back for our 20th anniversary. Um, but that, doing that exhibit actually helped broaden the museum stance and put us in a position, uh, we were evaluated by MAP through AAM and um, that evaluation process really highlighted courage and really said whatever you're doing with this exhibit has really heightened the awareness in your community, um, has really changed how people think about museums and it's really brought them here as a place of civic engagement. And so our director, Emily Zimmern, who I'm here representing today, um, decided that it was important for us to embed that into the DNA of the museum. How can we do that? How can we make dialogue and civic engagement much more integral to what the museum was doing? So that's what she decided to do. Um, and since then, we've tried it in lots of different ways. The way I'm gonna talk about most closely is Speaking of Change, which was our latest exhibit in an attempt to help Charlatans, native Charlatans and newcomers figure out what that relationship should be. Because there's a lot of tension in Charlotte. Um, if I was to ask this room, if you all were representing Charlotte Day, if I was to ask you to raise your hand if you were born in Charlotte, I might get the two people at the door. Um, and it's just that Charlotte has been heavily influenced and there's been heavy influxes of uh, newcomers consistently, even with the economic downturn. And we found that one of the largest population of newcomers is Latinos. That sparked a conversation at the museum. How are we gonna address this? How are we gonna talk about this? But then as we started doing more research and looking at the census number, it wasn't just Latinos. Um, we were having East Indians, we had people um, from Europe, we had people from New York, we had people from Florida. Um, and so the, the immigration conversation about and how that changes, the demographics were changing and um, Charlotte became much broader. We designed an exhibit called Changing Places and I'll show you some images from it later. Um, but that exhibit um, went on again to win awards and the whole conversation was who's coming into Charlotte as a, it was actually named an area of Latino hypergrowth with a 600% increase of Latinos within 10 years. So that's, paying attention to the kind of community changes and the uh, fluctuations in the community has helped influence how we um, engage in dialogue, especially around issues of immigration. So we pay a lot of attention to Pew studies and census data, school data. We have over 120 languages spoken in this local school district. So like we are, what we basically do is synthesize all that information and then incorporate that into the exhibits, but we also use focus groups to help launch that as well. Um, and so our engagement with immigration and, and civil rights has been most recently highlighted when we hosted the Southeast Regional for immigration sites uh, and brought lots of different museums together hosted by the immigration sites, uh, international <laughs> coalition sites of conscience for immigration, <laughs> um, say that. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say uh, three different ways by the time we get finished with this, but um, we all came together and, and had a conversation about how we can do that more um, insightfully, how we can do that more authentically, and how we can start to engage the community in that conversation right from the beginning, which is something that the museum really prides itself, that we don't start without engaging that community as the first step. Um, I'm hoping that you can both speak about what you think the specific potential of museums is to address key contemporary issues around immigration. 
what, what sets us apart as institutions and your institution specifically in addressing these issues? Um, well, I'm gonna borrow some language from you guys, which is that I think, first of all, the potential of museums is to activate these spaces of memory. Whether we're, as a little plug, we have another um, session tomorrow on this topic. So you should come to that as well. But, um, you know, as Sarah said, research shows that museums are one of the most trusted places for information. Like, besides your grandma, like, museums are it, right? Like, this is, this is where we go for information. And, um, and I may have something to say later about what it means to be neutral or not neutral as an institution and, and to think about putting out information. But, um, but you know, I think that museums sometimes forget the, the cultural capital that we have and the way that, that our communities trust us for this kind of thing. And so I think we're, we're really fulfilling our potential and doing a service to our community by addressing these, these tricky issues that you know, people want to be talking about, people want to be um, you know, wrestling with. Um, and I think that our histories also speak to these issues of immigration or migration somewhere. I mean, a lot of us are from sites that talk specifically, are, um, you know, that are really essentially about immigration, but even the ones that aren't, I would wager to guess that somewhere, you know, the story comes through, whether it's immigration, migration, thinking about refugees, whatever that might be. Um, and, and in my experience, by working through the history to talk about the contemporary issues, it, it opens up new lines of inquiry and it reframes the issue from being that highly politicized, kind of awful, difficult <laughs> conversation to being something that feels productive and that people feel like they have an entry point into and then suddenly feel like they can talk about these things that maybe they didn't know how to talk about before. Um, just to be specific about how that works in our museum, um, there are a, a lot of points of the history that when people learn, when people learn these points, they're really surprised and they want to talk about what that means, both for the history and then for today. So for example, um, when I was running one of these immigration dialogue programs, we once had a visitor from Minnesota talk about the fact that he once saw a voting ballot from like the 1890s and it was written in eight different languages. And he was just like, you know, I was so blown away by this artifact because, you know, with this conversation about speaking English and, and how important that might be in our country, you know, who would have thought that <laughs> way back then we'd have these voting language, uh, these voting ballots in all those languages. Um, similarly, people are very surprised at the Hull House Museum to learn that maybe not all of our European ancestors came legally to the United States, right? <laughs> we often receive these kinds of comments of, well, my grandfather did it right. And you sort of gently have to ask, do you know that? You know, did, did, did he? Because, you know, it, it was a little bit different back then. And, and similarly, people are surprised to learn that it was Polish and Irish immigrants who were deported in the late 19th century. They're also very interested to hear about, at least in Chicago, what was going on during the Great Depression when Chinese and Mexican um, migrants were being deported both legally and illegally from the city. Um, and I, I also feel like, m as I said, moving from history into the present when we're talking about these tough issues, it changes the emotional tenor of the conversation completely. I think we have a potential to create spa safe spaces that don't exist elsewhere, and, and we can learn um, strategies and tactics for addressing the, these deep emotions that, um, that visitors do bring to the table. Um, when we opened, Sarah asked the, general, the room a general question of what's going to come to mind, thinking of your institution when, it, when you say immigration. 
when you think about addressing immigration. And you all said things like backlash and expected 19th century controversy and then my grandmother. And to me, just those five examples really ran the gamut from very personal to historical to political. And in thinking about that, um, I think museums have a way of actually bridging the personal, the historical, and the political while actually inviting people to use their personal stories as an entry point, just as Lisa said. And by doing that, you take away kind of the onus of the museum and you, you begin to invite dialogue, which is the community actually having a, an experience of group learning rather than the museum informing that. So I think the potential with that is that you, you offer an opportunity, just as Lisa said, to in, engage your community in an entirely different way. Um, they actually use the speaking of change dialogue, and I say they, we had evaluators from the local university that partnered with us. Um, so they, this was a different dialogue than the Courage one that I initially talked about, and it was in, done in conjunction with the Changing Places exhibit. So those dialogue sessions, people would go through the exhibit and then they would have an opportunity to sit and talk to each other. It's usually intact groups. And they took the evaluation material from that. So they observed several sessions. They um, invited some people to do interviews. They took the evaluation information from that and actually did a report on the, the receptivity of museums uh, as a, the community receptivity increased because they went through via museum. And that might sound a little awkward, but basically is that um, what they're saying is that cultural institutions like museums have an ability to elevate receptivity of immigration issues and make your community a more welcoming space if they invite that dialogue into that space. So it gen generally impacts the entire community by that community hosting opportunities for the community to grapple with these issues. Um, so that's just one example of the potential. Is you don't necessarily know what you're getting into. And I know that many of you are sitting here saying, I don't, I don't want to talk about immigration. I'm like, or I do want to talk about it, and I'm not sure I want to talk about it. Or they want me to talk about it, and I'm not sure that I want to. So with whatever perspective you're coming from, you, have, you really do have an opportunity. And I can tell you, um, our museum doesn't necessarily shy away from um, touchy points. Um, but it's not to say that we go waving the flag to join us in controversy either. So I think that um, the potential there for any museum to engage their community is really great, but you do have to um, take courage. <laughs> you do have to have courage in order to do that. And um, we're gonna talk about this, I think, maybe later, but um, we've done that not just through exhibits. We also use direct programs. Um, some of those are kind of funneled to us through the immigration site, it's international site. It's funneled to us by Sarah. And <laughs> um, but some of them are things that we have just learned to kind of come up with and just to embrace and to take those opportunities and leave the door open for it. Great. Oh, there's a hand. Let me um, have you come up. Oh, there's a mic. Great. That's fabulous. Good. OK. Um, one of the flashpoints in terms of immigration that I've always found is language. It's, I mean, if you speak a foreign language, it's unpatriotic almost. It, it, it's really a point of controversy. And uh, how do you address that, I mean, in, in all your work? Um, what I'm finding is that there's such a... Uh, diverse opinion about it that communities tend to flock together in big cities as they immigrate and there are cities where you can go to and uh, 
if you don't speak Spanish or Chinese, you're, you're in trouble in certain parts of the city. Uh, so language is a flashpoint, and yet how do we engage people to learn English without making them feel like they're, um, you know, make, being hostile to another language? Because language to me is two things. It's communication, and it's also identity. And so th those are very, very important. And so when you have a country that's changing so fast, you, you've all mentioned the Latino population and all that, th that's just going to continue to be an issue. And I think language needs to be addressed uh, in any kind of forum like this or exhibit, et cetera. Um, oh, do you want to add something to that? Yeah. Um, oh, do you want to go ahead? Can, you, can we still get you guys to the mic? Just because they're recording it. I can't. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I was just uh, going to say, but language is often conflated with immigration in ways that are inappropriate because Puerto Ricans uh, who are Americans may have Spanish as their first language. Canadians have English as their first language and are not. I mean, I, you know, so there's this interesting way in which we I agree with you. <laughs> I'll tell you one way um, before I, I pass it along to you that um, the Lower East Side Tenement Museum decided to start a conversation at their site about the use of language, but then also to really take it a step full, full further. Um, and uh, we at the Tenement Museum, they came up with this idea. They looked around at their community within New York City. They, if you know the Lower East Side, it borders directly onto Chinatown. It borders directly onto large Spanish-speaking communities and an emerging Bangladeshi community. Um, and they looked around and they said, well, you know, in these houses, in these apartments that are right next to, to the museum and in the community, there is at least 60% to 70% of these homes are not speaking English. And they said, how can we serve our community effectively um, if our geographic community and the people who surround the museum aren't speaking English within their homes? And they also looked around New York City and they saw that there was a dearth of um, programs that were able to teach English for free. A lot of programs you could pay for, but a lot of programs that um, you could, that weren't there to be able to be accessed without money. And so the Tenement Museum started um, an ESOL program. Um, and originally they started actually trying to teach ESOL. They did that for about a year and then they said, well, we have taught 15 people and funders don't lack when it's only 15 people. <laughs> and this isn't our skill set. We don't know how to teach English. We had to bring other people in to do it. This isn't exactly the best use of our time. They ended up redrafting the program into a program called Shared Journeys. And what they did was um, invite local programs that were teaching English as a secondary language to use the museum um, as a series. They um, trained their educators in very simple techniques of working with speakers of other languages. And they drafted programs that would occur very early in the morning 
or very late in the evening that were accessible to immigrants in the neighborhood who were working, in some cases, two, sometimes three jobs. They let them come free of charge, and the Tenement Museum would give a tour um, using simplified language in English of one of the immigrant apartments. And they would use the tour to then have um, a discussion with the students afterwards, where the students would begin talking about these enduring social issues that were represented on the tours that also affected their daily lives. Um, what was great about their program, and I'll, I'll share two anecdotes real quick. One was that I, I was touring a group of Spanish speakers, um, and not knowing that we spoke Spanish, the one of the women leans over to the other woman and said, I don't understand why this is a museum. It looks like my apartment. <laughs> and we said, exactly. <laughs> And I said, that's, you know, that was exactly what we, we really were hoping to hear. And, to, and what ended up was an amazing discussion about public housing and about affordable housing for immigrants in New York City. Um, and we actually paired up the program with representatives from Housing and Urban Development who would come and talk to these um, immigrants about their rights as tenants within New York City, what they could and couldn't approach their landlords about. Um, there was another program, which is kind of my, my most heartwarming museum, museum experience, was a, a, a male immigrant. It was a small shared journeys group, about five people. And he walked through the apartment of the Baldizis, who were Sicilian Catholic immigrants, who we suspect came um, as undocumented immigrants, or at least one of the two, um, to the United States. And he heard their story, and he came back downstairs for the dialogue, and he very simply and humbly said to the educator, I've been here for four years, and I have to tell you, it's been hard, and um, I am thinking about going home, but if they can do it, I can. And he's since stayed, and I should tell you that three of the people in the original Shared Journeys class at the Tenement Museum are now part of the curatorial staff um, at the museum. So. It was one way in which to take this language model, and it's not something everyone can do, but the content of civics education, the content of American history, the content of immigration history is something that isn't typically taught in ESOL classrooms, but can be a very important context for those communities. So to be able to provide programming at institutions um, not necessarily bilingual programming. If you can, that's great. Um, but if that isn't an option, to be able to try to work with some of the ESOL teachers and community groups, they're always looking for opportunities to give another resource to their students. And we often would have entire immigrant families come to those sessions because they were so excited about coming to a museum and they wanted to bring their kids. So language can be pretty contentious, obviously. And um, in designing, literally in designing the Changing Places exhibit, we decided to make it bilingual with the hope that we would encourage um, native Spanish speakers to come and enjoy the museum as a family and that it would become a more welcoming space if we had made the attempt to make the exhibit bilingual. Um, that actually didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen during the first run of the exhibit. What happened is we actually extended the exhibit um, and we ended up partnering with the local Spanish radio station and we would go to the radio station 
and um, we speak um, we speak something like Spanish, but it's not. Um, we, could, we could have a direct conversation with the uh, with the DJ. So what we would do is invite um, a liaison to come in, and we would do historic segments on the local radio station. And so we had a segment that we, for a minute we were going every Friday during the run of Changing Places. And so we, myself or our staff historian would go. We would have a topic, and we would cover topics about programs that related to the museum. We would cover topics that we covered in Changing Places, and we use it as a way to highlight it. And then we take um, question and answer sessions while we're at the radio station, um, and we would sometimes answer in English, and sometimes we. Give it a shot and say see <laughs> if we agreed. Um, but we it, it was a, it was a way for us to really take some learning and that it wasn't going to be automatic. You don't put it up on the wall and people suddenly start coming to your museum because you threw some Spanish up on the wall. Um, it it just doesn't that's not what happens. And so it was a, a point of learning and a point of us taking a step back and realizing that we had some cultural understanding and some cultural competency to build amongst our staff. Um, and that in order to do that, we were gonna have to take this as a much more holistic approach. Um, and so we have continually tried to develop our capacity to do that. And we have a really small staff. Uh, it's only 15 of us. So we really have to be pretty cautious about what we're doing and pretty deliberate. And so we understand that. But if you want to build a relationship and you want to talk about this issue, how are you going to talk about immigrants when you don't make an authentic attempt to find pathways into their community? And that might be just literally building relationships. It might be finding somebody who can tr help translate. It might be going to the radio station. Some of it's some hard decisions. Bilingual, yeah, we were two languages. We had English and Spanish. Okay. Yeah. And then how do you, do you get a lot of white people to come down and see the exhibit? Oh, yeah. Because, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being funny. Our normal demographic is white people. Okay. That's, just to be honest with you, it's probably a marketing issue. It's just probably how you position it in the title. Sometimes it's as simple as the title of the exhibit. It might not be that the, the information would be any more or less appealing to the people 
I mean, literally, it can be as simple as a title issue, and that might be a different conversation than a than what we're trying to have right now. But that, just listening to you, it sounds like that might be more of how you're positioning your titling and how you who you're marketing to and who gets a hold of the the flyer. I can speak to that a little. Did you want to respond directly or? Oh, I thought you were. Okay, okay. Um, I, I just wanted to share one strategy and think a little bit about it. At, at our site, um, and I'm going to be talking about this more in depth tomorrow, but um, we we were sort of all white people. <laughs> we had the reputation of being that little sleepy little house, you know, in in the city. And and um, when we started to open up our um, our museum and really try to bring in diverse audiences of all kinds, um, the, the very first thing that we did, and, and it's like my most favorite recommendation, so everybody take a note, <laughs> which is that, because you don't, because it doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money, was that we um, started talking to other community organizations, of, in our case, largely activists around the city that, um, that weren't coming to the museum, that didn't know the work that we do, but that we felt that we had a connection with and we felt we should be working with. And in addition to asking them to work with us, we told them that they could use our space whenever they wanted to. And that's another one of those resources that we have that we take for granted. For those of you who do have meeting spaces, auditoriums, you know, the small community groups, that they don't have space and they need space. And this is like the most easy trade that you can possibly make. And, and what happened was over the next several years, we had so many community meetings that were based in our space that people started to see it as their space as well. And that opened up um, the, you know, the door for further partnerships and, and collaboration. And um, the other thing I wanted to think about is that um, museums maybe should think about um, ways of, of, of integrating these different groups, that it shouldn't, sometimes this, the program, we develop programs that are for one targeted audience or another targeted audience, but what does it mean to bring different groups together? Um, in Chicago, there's a really neat organization called the Chicago Cultural Alliance, which is a member of the Sites of Conscience, and they represent more than 25 different ethnic museums that exist in the city of Chicago. It's a, a, an extraordinary coalition, and as you can imagine, you know, a lot of these sites struggle for funding, struggle with their audience, struggle with relevancy in their communities because the original uh, ethnicity that they've served has since moved into the suburbs or moved into a different area of the city. And um, the program that they've been doing over the last year and that I've been assisting them as they develop um, is to um, think about the issues that matter to their communities, you know, their specific ethnic communities, and then talk to other sites that are having, that are also addressing issues. So whether that's foodways or safe spaces for children to play or whatever the issue is. And then they're having these cross-cultural dialogues that examine the unique cultural solutions that these groups are finding to those issues. And it's been a, a really great way for people just to think um, in totally different ways about these issues, to come together and to um, kind of transform the work that they're doing. Great, thanks. I don't think this is on. Okay, I'll talk into it. Um, can you describe some of your initiatives for high school ELL teachers? My husband happens to be a high school, Chicago Public School ELL history teacher, and his but it's not necessarily Spanish, although he's Colombian, he is Spanish speaking. He, he has to teach, I mean, Mongolians are on the northwest side of Chicago, it's crazy. Not crazy, it's great, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's diverse, like unbelievably diverse. But I would love to see him using the Jane Addams Hall House in, in, a, in a way that would really kind of 
have these kids go, oh, aha, you know, that type of thing. So could you speak on any initiatives, all three of you? I mean, I can tell you about the, um, the ELL program at the Tenement Museum, um, again, is kind of playing towards an idea of the entire approach that we've taken with English language learners is that there has to actually be a real reason that they're coming. And there has to be a real thing that they are going to learn that is useful in their day-to-day -day lives other than just learning our history. Because many of the new immigrant communities in New York City don't have the time. I mean, many of our community members think they don't have the time <laughs> to come to a museum, but specifically when you're a single immigrant mom taking care of five kids with two jobs, it can be really difficult. Um, and they told us that it needed to be useful. So with the ESOL and the ELL programs, um, we try to work with to teach a skill set as well. So for our English language learners, um, we do a program called uh, Tenement Inspectors, um, which um, really has to do with inspecting the historic apartments of the tenement for housing violations. What that then enables the students to do is that they're engaging in this wonderful historic sentiment where they're looking at the apartments um, and learning about the history of what our society has said is acceptable housing, um, what the different government agencies involved were, what the laws were, who said that we should have water, who said that we should have electricity, how does that work? So they're getting that piece of American history and technology but then what they also do is receive materials and a lot time within the curriculum to write a letter to their landlord. Um, and we also give them materials about um, tenants' rights so that they can then go home and also share them with their families and their parents um, to be involved as well. So, and that it's a challenging line, you know, in that sense. Some museums are very uncomfortable defining themselves as quote unquote activist museums, but I think it's a rare person who couldn't get behind making sure everyone had safe places to live. Um, so it's an easy way to, to take an action that provides them with something that's of real use to them using a historical context um, for what they do. I feel like we have a lot to learn from the Tenement Museum and, and you can have your, was it your husband? Give me a call because, you know, we, we, we haven't, you know, we don't have as many tour offerings as other sites do, and so I think that's an area where we'd really like to grow. Um, one area where I do feel like we've been successful in thinking about these language issues and thinking about the diverse student populations is by working with teachers. Um, we often run our dialogue programs with teacher groups, and of course, every single time, it comes back to them talking about their students and how they interact with their students, and I feel like if we can teach the teachers and, and provide some ways, not only about the content areas that we that we know best, but to help them think about what it means to be working in these populations, to um, you know that maybe that would transform some of those relationships as well. Uh, we work with. You can't say it's in Charlotte. They have inclusive classrooms, and I'm not sure if they do this everywhere. But if you're an ESL student, you would not necessarily be isolated in an ELL or ESL classroom. Um, you would just come in with, if there's a group coming, you're coming with that group, regardless of whether you understand anything that we're saying or not. Um, you would just sit there and look at us. Um, so one of the things that we decided to do was to educate our docents in such a way that they would use a lot of the same techniques that ESL teachers are supposed to use. So they do just do all the same, a lot of the same strategies that um, ESL teachers do in their classrooms, which 
is a part of our uh, trying to be more inclusive with the museum. I mean, we also do that. We give tours to people who are blind. We've given tours to people who are deaf. Give tours to people who don't speak English. We actually have a partnership with the local um, community college, which is really kind of dark down the street because we're all located in Uptown Charlotte, Central Piedmont Community College, one of the largest community colleges in North Carolina. Um, and we partnered with them for, a, for an English second language pro, uh, program in which they brought their students for a tour and their teacher created the curriculum. So we didn't create it, we just made it really accessible for them. So we allowed them to have um, free visitation to the museum and they in turn provided us with the curriculum that they designed for the students. So we could have indeed kind of took that on and, and created a tour for it. We basically just made it really accessible for the students to have access to it because as someone said, they're always looking for resources. It might have been you saying they're always looking for resources. Um, but we also do professional development, which we try to just get people to think about that when you're bringing a whole group. I would want to just mention one more thing that Janine brought up also, which is that I think is just really important, which is that you know, if you want to work with certain populations, think about what your staff looks like and think about how to diversify your staff a little bit. I mean, it sounds like you guys do a lot of training um, for your staff, and, and I'm sure think about who you're hiring. We also, um, you know, work really, first of all, all of my staff of educators, they are um, all students at the university, and so they look like the university, and they, I, literally, once I had a young girl sort of come up to us and say, when does the old lady give us the tour? <laughs> and then, the, the, you know, the, the young woman responded, no, no, that's me, I'm your tour guide. <laughs> Okay. So, so you know, I mean, I, I think if we're trying to change some of the um, stereotypes that people have about museum settings, that that's a really easy, n n maybe not easy, but that it's a really important step to take. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, nothing wrong with that. Yes. Entire Change in Places exhibit was examining exactly that. Yeah, it was. It, it took it for, as a transnational issue from from Jump Street because we, like I said, we were using the information around us, and that information was telling us um, some people go retire in Florida, decide they don't like it, and come back to Charlotte. Some people go come from Mexico, and they're here for a couple years. They do what they need to do, and they go back home. Um, but then there was also some people who were being deported back home. So we were examining that issue and we did not shy away from it. In fact, one whole area of the Changing Places exhibit dealt with exactly that. It dealt with, and I did, the, this is kind of our, our Changing Places commercial. Some of you were able to see it going really quickly. Sarah, you might be able to restart that. But the whole idea is that you're supposed to talk with strangers. I don't know how, I don't, you probably have to escape and press slideshow again um, from the beginning. Over, over. Um, so the idea was that we understood that this was a transnational issue and that people were going to move and fluctuate. 
Um, and so as you'll see it go through, you'll hear it's talking about people sharing their stories. But we, one of the things we realized quickly is that it didn't matter whether you were from Mexico or whether you're from New York or whether you're from California, everybody had a story to tell. Um, and that was a part of their story, a lot of people's story. Yeah, I think that's been our experience too, that, that it comes up in the dialogue often if people have these diverse backgrounds that they, it then becomes a part of the conversation. And, and that's part of what's so nice about dialogues is that they're shaped by the people who are talking. And so um, it requires a little bit of flexibility on um, the facilitator's part, and I have some strategies for thinking about that. But um, but it's nice that you know the, the issues that are important to your audience will come to the forefront if you allow that space for it. She, if you didn't hear that, she said that um, we had mentioned earlier this issue of being neutral, quote unquote, um, and how that's defined at our organizations. Um, so I'm going to let you guys go first, and then we can. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess there's um, kind of this general understanding, of course, that that institutions are are neutral. You know, art museums and and history museums and science museums and all these places, and and. Um, and that that allows us to kind of do our work because we're unbiased in that way. And our staff has been thinking a lot about whether we are neutral and what that would mean. And um, I'm sure, you know, for a lot of our sites, for example, um, I don't know that anyone would really say that they were neutral on issues of slavery, for example, or on women having the right to vote, right? I mean, we wouldn't use that kind of language neutral. We might say, we don't really address those issues, or we might say, well, we don't talk about it as, uh, you know, advocating in one way or another, but, like, nobody would say they're neutral, right? Um, and, and our side, and I'm just talking, you know, personally from my experience, we, we are a women's history site, we are a peace site, and I think now we would claim that we are a pro-immigration site. I mean, this is the legacy of our history, a and beyond that, this is the work that we want to do, both as a staff and as a community today. And so, in that way, I think I wouldn't necessarily say that we're neutral and I also think it's a lie for other museums to say that they are neutral because you know they're probably not in, in you know saying that you're what does that mean right like not speaking sometimes also indicates a position right um, and so I, I wonder I mean I'm I sort of feel like there are sites that maybe need to not be neutral especially if they're dealing with human rights issues like the Holocaust Museum is not neutral, right? <laughs> so I think that's just like bunk language and that we should avoid. And, uh, and, then, and then to think about what that means. And, and again, uh, part of where people get hung up, a lot of people say to me, well, you know, it's really nice that you're the Jane Addams Hull House Museum. You know, you guys fought for a lot of things that, you know, peace and, you know, things that nobody's going to um, argue with. And, and, you know, people say, well, I work at a plantation site. You know, what am I supposed to do? But again, it's not that it's not that you're required to take on the politics of your site. That would be scary and ridiculous. Um, it's more that you need to use, I, I think that we should be using the politics of our sites in order to have these conversations and to, again, open up those lines of inquiry. What do you think? Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lie and say we're neutral now. Um, <laughs> I I think that you have, I think that, and this alludes back to what I said earlier, museums have a tr tremendous opportunity to 
let the community influence your stance. And if you if you can open your doors wide enough, and you don't have to claim to be neutral, you just have to claim to be inviting, um, and inviting to both sides of the story. And that's where we take our stance. We're inviting to both sides of the story. Um, so. I don't, I, don't I don't necessarily feel that we have to claim that we're pro-immigration, but we are certainly inviting to both sides of that story. So. But I want to like question that or challenge that a little bit, I guess, because uh, we as a pro-immigration site have all kinds of dialogues and conversations and programs about immigration. There's heated debates that take place in our site. Um, but I will feel comfortable going on the record saying that we would never invite the Minutemen to come and ha engage in that dialogue. And I think it's not, um, it's partly because, y y you know, okay. <laughs> yes, we would invite the Minutemen to have come and engage that dialogue. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I've had a Klansman on my tour before. Um, so, yeah, we would. In, in fact, we, we did a program at the top of the year for Courage, and we invited um, the local Tea Party and the NRA to come um, as, as our guests as well. Just as just as we invited um, our nonprofit leaders and our educators, we thought it behooved us to also invite a little bit of everybody. We like to we like to mix the pot up a little bit, um, and, which is not easy. It's not easy and not necessarily fun either when you get everybody in that room. But if you want to be open to dialogue, you gotta let the people into it. Um, might be very abrasive to other people. And I mean, everybody doesn't agree with everybody else. That's just kind of where it is. And I also think we have a, a particular stance as a, we're in a Southern community. And we're in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it is very Southern, despite the fact that it is a global city. Um, there are still some Southernisms deeply rooted in what we do and how we go about business. So I don't know how many of you all in here represent, of y'all in here represent Southern um, sites. Um, but there, there's a there's an extra little layer of, of cultural significance to that that does make us be very critical of how we position ourselves as museums and how we pursue the issue and, how, and who we invite and how we invite people into the doors. This is the conversation we have at the coalition with our sites every day, <laughs> um, is that we do have numerous sites um, like Levine um, and I would actually say Hull House is, is one of our more risk-taking sites, too, um, who are really kind of pushing the envelope on um, inviting communities into a museum who may not necessarily be invited otherwise, and who are really pushing the gamut on making a place where people of multiple perspectives can come together. And I think we use the term multiple perspectives too loosely in museums right now. And we just say, oh, well, I'll take this one historical event and I'll, I'll use this race's perspective or this gender's perspective and, and that's new and revolutionary for us. Um, but what we may not necessarily be doing effectively is bringing in the perspectives um, that we don't necessarily agree with, that are a little more challenging, that might cause those that little bit of a protest outside of our site. Um, and, and I think that's what's really amazing about Levine is their willingness to take that step and to do that. Um, one of the things that all of our sites have in common is this belief in dialogue as a concept and this idea that you cannot have effective and open dialogue while keeping people away from the table um, to do that. And so um, in doing that, I think that, that some of the coalition sites tend to be some, some pretty brave folks to do it. I would put the caveat, though, that I think it's very important in doing that work 
that you have people who are emotionally prepared to do it um, and who are trained in being able to facilitate a session of that nature well um, to do it because not only for the protection of your staff and their own emotional sensitivities within issues, but that's the best way to protect your institution from what might be political in that sense. And, and I did want to add just to the, the, the idea of neutral, which I think is, um, which Lisa talked about very well, this idea that none of us are neutral, um, but we're all political too. And, I, and I, I get nervous when museums start saying, oh, we don't want to be political, and we don't want to be active, you know, we're, we're not an activist site, but we are political, you know, I mean, we're, and the politics of our sites are dictated by numerous funders, by numerous governmental agencies, by numerous other people who lay claim to our spaces as well, um, and our community members are political in the way that they enact, um, interact with our spaces. Um, so. It, I kind of want to encourage us to, to not be afraid of that terminology anymore because we're in a society where that is laced into not only our history and the way we tell it, but the way that our communities enter our spaces. Um, for Levine, I'm sorry, I forgot your name. Levine Museum, we do a uh, program where we um, actually work with the Mexican consulate in Atlanta. And so we have about 2,000 people that come onto our site to celebrate the Day of the Dead. And I think when it first started, we were like, oh, yay, we're going to let, you know, a lot of the Mexican immigrants will come, no one else will come. And then, no, families come, you know. Everyone wants to, it's fun, you love it. And we find that the kind of the ugly other side of that, people get annoyed when they see Spanish being written. This is not their museum. They should be located in another part of town where there's Mexican immigrants. And it's when those um, people bring that stuff up that other groups, in this instance, other white people, start thinking about, their, well, that's just wrong. You know, this is as much their museum. So I was wondering, do you see when you bring in that other side of the story that you're actually helping to convince what is probably the ultimate goal of the museum is, you know, by bringing in the tea party or not, and it's okay if you are a tea party, or, <laughs> or the clan or something, you end up convincing other constituents about the negativity of that view. You know what I mean? So would you like for me to give you an amen? Is that what you mean? <laughs> um, so we, are, we also host um, a Day of the Dead celebration. We work in conjunction with our local Latin American coalition, um, and the we have invited the consulate from Raleigh, and we actually um, at one point got some materials from the consulate in Atlanta, I think. So go, go team. Um, and we found a lot of the same things is that when we have we host four community major community days each year, um, and we call it community days. We open our doors to the public for free on those days, and Day of the Dead is one of those days. And that day we get about a thousand people um, into our space, at least a thousand people into our space. Uh, and it's families, it's people who have never seen anything like this, people who are, are really familiar with traditions and know all the songs, and we are fine putting everything up in Spanish, we just go for it. Um, we do traditional Mexican decorations, we have pepecado strung up all over the atrium, we have, uh, giant flowers, paper flowers all over the museum. And for that day, we completely transform our space. Um, 
and I think you're exactly right, is that doing that, not only does, are we showing that our museum can honor and celebrate a, a, a facet of history that may not be familiar to other people. That's kind of the point of a museum, to, to let you explore something and grapple with it and uh, check it out. We're doing that, but it's literal people. So these are people building altars. They build altars that day in the museum space. Um, they, they have to stand beside their altars. People go through and kind of judge the altar they think is the coolest. And <laughs> we have an MC. She speaks in Spanish for the majority of the program and does, she, she translates, she speaks Spanish first. So Spanish language first and then she translates into English. So on that day, our space is completely transformed. We're really building a relationship with the Spanish speaking community, but we're also giving an opportunity for the community is really unfamiliar with that history and that culture to really get some insight. It's not show and tell though. We don't want to do that. Don't like that at all. So we are really giving an opportunity for an authentic relationship to be built between the museum and between Latin American coalition, but then between our English speaking neighbors and friends and our Spanish speaking neighbors and friends. I just want to add, because Janine hasn't mentioned it, that um, the Levine Museum is working with a coalition grant right now on issues of education equity in Charlotte. And they are intentionally bringing together members of the African American community and the Spanish speaking community there, um, grouped by churches, by the media, by in education, businesses, um, to do some really phenomenal coalition building work using their courage exhibit as a basis for that. Um, so enabling their space and that history to serve as a, as a root, as a basis to start dialogue around a, a really pressing issue in Charlotte right now um, has really inserted them and made them more important. And I think we all want our sites to be more important um, to our communities as well, so. Yeah, I think this is our last one because we're running out of time, so make it good. <laughs> <laughs> I agree, and I think we as sites who are all unified kind of interpret that very differently, as you've seen. Um, I, I think it's also interesting in, in light of what you said to think about um, 
we, you know, we at the Tenement Museum never invited the Minutemen. It wasn't something we believed in. We are an institution whose mission says tolerance within um, our mission, so tolerance was not something we interpreted with that specific perspective. Um, but I also thought it was very interesting and something I learned in working with the Arab American National Museum was, was pretty fascinating around that idea for me, which was that um, members in, in the community and at the museum were so sensitive to the fact that every time there was a forum about any issue about Islam or Arab Americans um, in the state of Michigan, it had to be um, multi-religious and it had to be, there had to be representation from the Israeli community, from the Arab community, from anyone who might possibly have a stake in the Middle East. Um, and it was very interesting to think about it in that way too, that in this arbitrary way of trying to give people, everyone a voice around an issue, um, do we remove the ability of, uh, of someone to really talk about their own particular perspective on the issue and, and are we obligated to do that? Is it okay to just show one side? I don't know. Well, right, there's not only two sides, there are three. That's true. <laughs> It's particularly a challenging world we're all working in right now, especially around fundings and, and issues like this. But um, I think the fact that you're all here um, is a really good sign. I hope that you'll continue to um, talk to both Lisa and Janine about their programs and, and also um, to talk to us here at the coalition. We're, um, we're always looking for a few good new sites. So um, please take the opportunity to do so. And thank you so much for joining us um, at the beginning of the conversation. Thank you.